Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 27 of History Books and Wine. I'm your host this week, Madeline Martin, a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. Today, we're going to be talking about spies, specifically this week about Matahari, who is one of the most sensual spies of all time. But before I get into the life of Matahari, I am going to share what I'm drinking tonight. Tonight, I am drinking Gnarly Head. 1924 double black. First of all, it's got this really nice bottle that's kind of like a frosted glass. And another thing is Mr. Awesome likes to look at it and see what the alcohol content is on the wine because he swears that the ones that have the higher alcohol content have a bolder flavor. And he's not wrong. They typically do. And this one packs a whopping 15% by volume alcohol proof. So that's pretty impressive for a bottle of wine. Generally, they average about like 13.5%. So this definitely qualifies in the bold and lush-like category. From the website, it says, 1924 Double Black is a dark red blend inspired by the field blends made popular during the Prohibition. So tasting this is like a little taste of the Prohibition. From the website, it states, Gnarly Head 1924 Double Black delivers rich aromas of blackberry preserves, cocoa, raspberry, and caramel, setting the stage for a juicy core of concentrated, dense blackberry and fig jam flavors that finish with a hint of baking spice. Jet black in the glass, pair this full-bodied wine with an equally bold dish like charboiled bacon cheeseburgers, spicy sausage gumbo, or pork baby back ribs slathered in barbecue sauce. Yum, that sounds delicious. And I'm going to pour a glass right now. Here we go. Nice big glass. Oh yeah, that is so good. Love, love, love that. Although with 15% alcohol, you probably don't want to get too crazy on drinking like a whole bottle of this. You may have a little bit of a headache the next day. So without further ado, I'm going to talk a little bit about Matahari. Matahari is not Asian. She's not Middle Eastern. She's not a Hindu princess. In fact, she's 100% Dutch. Both of her parents were from Holland. She was born on August 7th, 1876 as Margareta Zell, and she was born in the Netherlands. She grew up wealthy and educated, most likely having a private tutor and attending schools that did cost money to attend. However, her father lost all of his wealth. Her parents eventually divorced and her father did remarry. However, she didn't really feel very comfortable in her new home with her stepmother and so she actually ended up going and living with her godfather. However, there were some problems with flirtations that happened between teachers that apparently her godfather wasn't too thrilled about and so through difference of opinions and several disagreements, she ended up running away to her uncle's home where she ended up living as she decided to go to school of all things to become a kindergarten teacher. However, I think that over time she 
she started to realize that the life of a kindergarten teacher wasn't quite what she wanted. And so she ended up seeing an ad in a Dutch newspaper to marry a Dutch army captain who was living in the East Indies. So she apparently sent him a picture of herself and of all of the women who answered the ad, he decided that he wanted to marry her. Now, at the time, she was 18 and he was 38. You know, the funny thing is I used to love to read a lot of Western romances and I loved my favorite, favorite, favorite of all the Western romances were the mail order brides. And I can tell you right now, this story does not have a romance novel mail order bride ending at all. Captain McLeod was the son of a baroness. So the marriage launched Matahari back into the Dutch upper class and wealth. She ended up moving to Malang to be with him and she got to enjoy a life of wealth and class once more, just like she had before her father lost all of his wealth. Unfortunately, the captain was an alcoholic and he was abusive. Oh, and he also openly kept a concubine, which apparently was just the kind of thing that guys did in Malang back then. Despite their differences and their troubles in their relationship, they did end up having two children, a boy and a girl. Matahari tried to leave her husband once. In doing that, she really delved into the culture and the dance of Malang. And she did that as something to kind of take her mind off of things. I know personally when I went through my divorce, I started taking Krav Maga. I totally get wanting to take up something to take your mind off of everything that you're going through. So as she was doing this Malang culture dance, she decided to give herself a stage name, something that was a little bit more artistic. And so she named herself Matahari, which literally translates to Eye of the Day. And after she went through and had her time alone, she finally returned to her husband. And it probably had a lot to do with the fact that he had the children with him as well. She didn't have the opportunity to take the kids with her. So I'm pretty sure it was more like she was going home to her children rather than going home to her her husband who was an alcoholic and abusive and had a concubine. At any rate, they did end up moving back to the Netherlands where the children apparently got incredibly sick. Both of these poor kids had syphilis from their parents. It's pretty sad. The youngest, the son, ended up dying through complications with syphilis and the daughter ended up living with Matahari and the captain was supposed to pay child support and give them other financial support as they were living on their own. However, he never did it. And one time when the captain kept the daughter with him, he did not give her back. And unfortunately, Matahari lacked the financial resources to fight the system to do anything to get her daughter back. And so she kind of figured, well, he was a better father than he was a husband and she couldn't do much about it. And so her daughter was left to live with a father. I would like to say that the daughter went on to have a really great and happy life, but unfortunately she also died. She did live to be 21, but she did also die of complications due to syphilis that she had contracted from her parents. It's pretty sad to think that these children never really even had much of a chance at life just because their parents had syphilis. In 1903, Matahari moved to Paris and she became a horse rider on a circus stage and she called herself Lady McLeod, which of course her in-laws hated and only further incited her husband, who was already a big time jerk. While she was in Paris, she ended up becoming mistress to a French diplomat and he loved her dances, if you would imagine. Those Malang dances she learned how to do that she named herself Matahari afterwards. And he kind of was the one to nudge her in the direction of deciding to become a dancer and make money off of it. So in 1905, she had her debut act at Musée Gumet. She was sensual, promiscuous, flirtatious, and wholly captivating. Everybody was completely enthralled. She started off telling people that she was a Javanese princess of priestly Hindu birth. And now back then, a lot of artists and dancers actually made up stories about them 
themselves. And it really was not uncommon. However, in this particular case, they believed her because she had this beautiful glossy dark hair and she had this lovely tan complexion and she looked different than everybody else. And so they all bought the fact that she was of a different nationality and they thought that she was a most exotic, exquisite woman out there. A reporter in Vienna described Matahari as slender and tall with the flexible grace of a wild animal and with blue-black hair. Her face, he wrote, makes a strange foreign impression. Another enthralled newspaper writer called her so feline, extremely feminine, majestically tragic, the thousand curves and movements of her body trembling in a thousand rhythms. Wow, that's pretty powerful. The girl left an impact, I'm just saying. Some of the things that she was famous for were draping herself in veils and slowly dropping them from her body in almost like a burlesque style, slowly showing off her body little bit by little bit. She was often known for doing nude portraits and partially nude photography, as well as being a model for artists. So she had no problem taking off her clothes. However, it is very interesting because she was very self-conscious about the size of her breasts. And so even though she would bear everything from like the belly button down, no problem, she always would wear some sort of a bejeweled bralette or of some kind to cover up her womanly bits on the top. And she always put on beautiful headdresses that were made of all kinds of gems and pearls with necklaces and just jewelry all over her body. So all of her completely sparkled. No bejazzling that I'm aware of, but I wouldn't put it past her. One performance that she had for a garden party, she showed up nearly naked on a white horse. I don't know if she was trying to do like a Lady Godiva kind of thing, but at any rate, her buttocks were almost completely bared. And this was quite the thing because apparently they were all about the butt back then. So having her have an almost naked butt was like, ooh la la. In 1906, she ended up getting divorced. Her divorce was finally finalized and her former husband used the naked pictures that she had of herself as a reason for their daughter not to go back and live with her. So Matahari was about 29 years old when she really started doing all of these performances and everything. And that's pretty impressive for being 30 years old and really starting off a career basically as being a burlesque dancer and doing striptease. And her career really hung in there for, I mean, quite a while. Probably like it lasted a good seven years. In 1912, her career finally started to drop off a little bit as age started to settle in, as it does, where weight kind of sticks on a little little bit more. Maybe those, what was it that it was said? Thousand curves and movements of her body trembling in a thousand rhythms. That doesn't maybe become quite so nice as we all get older. (laughs) There might be more jiggling rather than trembling. place with me. Her career slowly but surely started to die off. She started to have less and less people wanting to book her for performances. And finally, she had her last official dance in March 1915. But Matahari was not done yet. She ended up becoming an incredibly popular mistress. With the onset of World War I, Matahari was fully ensconced in the life of a mistress and loved all men, regardless of what nationality they were, what they looked like, who they were, what side of the war they fought on. Now, most of those actually really don't matter, but unfortunately, what side of the war they fought on, that gets a little prickly. No pun intended. Being a natural citizen of Holland, she was allowed to travel back and forth over the border, and this was definitely noticed. In 1916, 
2016, she had a Russian lover named Vladimir Demeslov, who is 21 years old, to her 40. He was injured in battle and left blind. She was so desperate to see him that she crossed the border as she always did, except this time she was detained by the French. They held her there and tried to convince her to become a spy. And she was so desperate to get to see Vladimir that she agreed to spy for the French. So before I continue any further, Matahari has always been, whenever I think of like, oh, a spy in history, one of my first thoughts is like, oh, Matahari, because she's so, she's so like sensual and this incredible spy that's just seducing the secrets out of every single tongue on either side of the border. And just, you know, I had this incredible idea of her. However, she kind of was a little bit bumbling and she wasn't really even technically a spy. She was just almost sort of like a victim of circumstance who was just trying to kind of fill her pockets and live a life of extravagance that she was used to even as her looks are fading and that's the only thing that she gets money for. So anyways, without further ado, I'm going to continue talking about this, but I just have to say like I thought that her spy career was so much more than it really ended up being. She agreed to accept a lucrative assignment from the French to spy on the Germans. Ironically, the thing that she was supposed to be spying on, the people she was supposed to be getting the information from, knew absolutely nothing about it. I don't know if the French were aware of that and they were just trying to test her loyalty, or if it just happened to be sort of an accident, but history has proven that the people that she was sent to spy on had absolutely no knowledge of anything. She didn't know that, however. So when she went there to go spy on the Germans for the French, she started to slip the Germans little tidbits of French information. I think she thought that she was being coy with this. I think she thought that if she gave them little bits of information, they would trust her, or at least that's what her excuse for this was. Some people think that she was trying to do it as a way of trying to get hired by the Germans. Some people, there's there's all these different conspiracy theories out there, and nobody really knows except for Matahari. But anyway. This ultimately got back to French spies that she was slipping Germans little tidbits of information, and they arrested her for espionage on February 3rd, 1917. So this woman who was so used to a lavish lifestyle was suddenly thrust into a prison with rats and filth. While under confession, she admitted to accepting 20 francs from the Germans to get information from Paris. Now, she actually said that she was not spying on the French for the Germans. She simply said that she did it as a trick to get the money from them so that she could continue to purchase the furs and jewels and live the lifestyle that she had gotten used to. She had no intention whatsoever to spy for the French. The French, unfortunately, did not buy this excuse. And a trial followed where, ironically, her lawyer who was representing her was none other than, of course, a former lover. And the lover who she'd sacrificed her freedom for originally when she accepted that deal from France, Vladimir Demaslov, well, he refused to come and speak for her as a character witness. After everything that she basically lost for him, he did nothing for her. This was a really low blow, and apparently this was one of those that she really, really struggled to accept. She had a really hard time with the fact that he totally left her high and dry. In the trial, the French twisted facts had made it look like the men who had paid for her, we'll call them favors, over time on across different sides of the war, were instead paying for intelligence. And so it's no surprise that she was eventually sentenced to death by a firing squad. And it's reported that before the squad fired at her, she looked at the soul. She was blindfolded, but she turned to the soldiers and blew them a kiss and they all fired upon her. So that is the very sad story of Matahari. Yeah, like I said, I was really blown away by the fact that Matahari wasn't like this incredibly seductive spy kind of person that I had in my head. I think 
Like I said, she just kind of got caught up. Girl just wanted to keep her life. She wanted to live her best life. And she did anything to try to make that possible. And in the end, it just caught up with her. Going to have a sip of wine to that. So now, what I've been reading, or well, listening to, because you guys know I always like to listen to my audiobooks. This is one of my favorites. This is Find Her by Lisa Gardner, which is a thriller. Narrated by Kirsten Potter. She is such an incredible narrator. And she does just the best narration with this story. I think this is one of my favorite thrillers of all thrillers that I've read. Seven years ago, carefree college student Flora Dane was kidnapped while on spring break. For 472 days, Flora learned just how much one person can endure. Miraculously alive after her ordeal, Flora has spent the past five years reacquainting herself with the rhythms of normal life. Working with her FBI advocate, Samuel Keynes, she has a mother who's never stopped loving her, a brother who is scared of the person she's become, and a bedroom wall covered with photos of other girls who have never made it home. When Boston detective Dee Dee Warren is called to the scene of a crime, a dead man, and the bound naked woman who killed him, she learns that Flora has tangled with three other suspects since her return to society. Is Flora a victim or a vigilante? And with her first-hand knowledge of criminal behavior, could she be the key to rescuing the missing college student whose abduction has rocked Boston? When Flora herself disappears, Dee Dee realizes a far more sinister predator is out there, one who's determined that this time Flora Dane will never escape, and now it is all up to Dee Dee Warren to find her. Oh, this is so good. And seriously, the narration is just absolutely incredible. Lisa Gardner is one of my favorite thriller authors anyway, so this is just like a complete and total home run. So if you love thrillers, check out this book. If you love thriller audiobooks, definitely check out this audiobook. I will put the links in the show notes. Now I'm going to talk about my book this week. So this book is recently released. It's called The Highlander's Challenge. A while ago, when Kindle Worlds were still around, Catherine Levesque did a Kindle World for her DeWolf series. I was part of the wolf pack and so after kindle world stopped we were able to redo our books if we wanted to take all the to wolf information out and republish it so that's what i've done with this book it's one of my absolute favorite novellas that i have written before i just absolutely thought the hero was so incredibly he just absolutely melted my heart he has to take care of his younger siblings and he's just so incredibly sweet and seeing him interact with his sister and brother it's just so sweet and then the heroine is like a female warrior, like a knight basically. And she's just like totally awesome. I want to grow up and be her someday. <laughs> Anyways, this book is available for sale. However, I'm also doing it as a little teaser for people to sign up for my newsletter. People can either purchase it or you can get it for free. I will have the link in my show notes. Here's what it's about. Bridget DeVere wants nothing more than to kill the man who slew her brother on the battlefield, a man to whom she later finds herself betrothed. Marrying Aiden McCallum is the perfect opportunity for her to get close enough to exact her revenge. Except that the more she gets to know him, the harder it is to go through with her plan, and the more she is drawn to the man she is supposed to hate. When passion and vengeance collide, can enemies become lovers, or are they destined to lose everything? Dun, dun, dun. So anyways, that's the Highlander's Challenge. I absolutely loved, loved, loved writing this, and I hope that everybody enjoys reading it. And now we have our reader question. So this question comes from Lori in Texas, and Lori wants to know, what do you enjoy the most about doing the podcast? 
Well, first of all, hanging out with Lori and Eliza once a month while we do our happy hour is definitely one of my favorite things. It's so much fun to get to chat with them. I think that the three of us could just like chat forever. And um, usually we end up talking before the show and after the show. And our one hour segment that we do for our happy hour typically ends up being like a three hour (laughs) chat. And we have a lot of fun. And we usually are a little bit hungover the next day as well. Also, the wine is pretty cool too. I mean, this is probably the only job that I've ever had that I get to drink wine on my job so that's pretty cool I enjoy doing that but another thing that I really enjoy aside from like I said Lorraine Eliza and the wine is I love the research I have learned so much by doing this podcast not only by the research that I've done myself but also by listening to Lorraine Eliza's podcast I look forward to every single Thursday because I can't wait to listen to what everybody else is talking about it's just so much fun So my question for readers this week is, what are you enjoying the most about our podcast? Have you found any new wine? Are you learning any new tidbits? Do you just enjoy kind of listening and hanging out with me, Lori and Eliza, when we do our happy hour? We would love to hear what you enjoy the most about it. You can send us your answer at historybooksandwine at gmail.com, as well as any other questions that you may have. Please check out our website at historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com to hear our podcasts and read through the show notes. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and on Alexa. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Feel free to leave a review if you've enjoyed the show. New episodes are posted every Thursday, and the upcoming shows include August 22nd with Laurieann Bailey, who will be talking about a spy that I can't remember right now, but it's going to be really good, and I can't wait to listen. And August 29th is our next happy hour, and we'll be chatting about all things spies, gadgets, the perils of spying, etc. So please stay tuned for that because it should be a lot of fun and that's it thank you so much for listening i hope you have a great evening and drink tons of good wine Bye.